This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Hello and welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Tracy Walbrink, a pediatric intensivist at Boston Children's Hospital, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity here again today to talk with Dr. Robert Tasker, the Editor-in-Chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, a Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School, and the founding chair of Neurocritical Care at Boston Children's Hospital. Robert, we welcome you to this podcast today. Thank you very much, Tracy. This podcast is the second in a two-part series where we are talking with Dr. Tasker about emerging trends and research related to our field of pediatric critical care medicine. In the last podcast, Dr. Tasker walked us through some sentinel manuscripts that are being heavily read at this point. And the second one today is going to focus on the domain of journal priorities, what is emerging, what are some of the trends that are coming forward. And so we're really excited to dive into where are we looking towards in the next couple of years. So Robert, I'm going to jump right in. What do you see as some of the journal priorities upcoming in the next year or two? Thank you, Tracy. For me, really what's at the sort of top of the priority list is to attract the best papers that our readers will read. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, we're now in the enviable position of having much more content submitted to us than we could ever hope to publish. And so it is a competition and there are priorities. And even if a manuscript is technically well written and well executed, we now have to consider what makes this something that should be in the journal. And the priorities for me are, is this work providing new and novel information? Are the conclusions robust, stable, and free of harms for patients? Does the manuscript have the potential to change clinical practice or lead to further research that will change clinical practice? Does the work change the way we think about a particular topic? And lastly, are the conclusions generalizable to the international places of practice of the readership? Obviously, an an article isn't going to meet all of those priorities, but it has to meet some of them. And that's the competition now that uh, I'm very privileged to have the opportunity to read and see. So, you know, that that's number one, get the most or the highest priority work out there. The second key thing for me is to have the journal read. And that means getting more subscribers having people who want to read. Uh, I'm I'm going to put in an unashamed plug now for the journal and the Society of Critical Care Medicine. I've been a member of the society since I completed fellowship in 1992 and a continuous member. And I really valued getting critical care medicine And then when PCCM came out, getting PCCM. What is it that I do for readers and subscribers? I try and give them added value. I produce a video 
for SCCM members once a month about recognizing that many people are too busy to read anything. What are the general type of articles that you should read? And if you really are short of time, I would recommend just going through my editor's choice, the three articles a month, and having a look at those. And we make them all open access uh, so readers can have a look at those. We also tweet articles, have anywhere between 10 and 13,000 followers who will look at the tweets. I don't know if people actually read the articles. I'm very cagey about telling people the content. I'll, I'll point you to an article, but I'm not going to I think you used the term spoiler. I'm not going I'm not going to spoil it for people who have spent a lot of time writing the article. You know, the idea is to make you go to that. Those are the things to look out for, the video, the tweet, and the editor's choice. If we can get more people reading, then that's victory for me. That's excellent, Robert. I think these are all really important and valuable ways that people are consuming education and materials nowadays with, as you said, short, concise opportunities to watch a short video, curated lists and resources by one of the experts in our field, and looking and using social media. So I think this forward-facing strategy is super important, and I commend you on that. Are there any other things that the journal is looking to do in the next year or so to try to increase this readership and make it more accessible to those that are around the world? Belonging to a journal or belonging to society is expensive, and a lot of our readers are all around the world can't access this. And so I love the idea of the open access editor's choice uh, videos. Are there any more of those types of opportunities that you're offering within the journal or anything else that you're really excited that's coming down the pipeline that we should be looking out for? So each month we have three articles with their editorials that people can just look at. They're open. There are other materials that may or may not get included in that list. It really depends on the content of the journal. So since May 2021, I introduced a section called Pediatric Critical Care Medicine Notes, Methods and Statistics. Chris Horvat started that off with an article about confounding and causality, which was a a sort of statistical approach to how are readers to, to look at material that claims a causal link And how do you deal with confounding? In that same issue, published an article by Beshish and colleagues looking at hyperoxia in cardiopulmonary bypass and uh, outcome. And Mark Peters wrote the editorial on that piece. So there were three items that were linked together that readers could get access to. We um, have published a statistical note about scoping reviews uh, versus systematic reviews by Yan Hao Li from Singapore, wrote a, a really nice piece about that. And that item went with a scoping review that we had published on vitamin C. Quality improvement studies, Rich Brilly 
wrote um, a PCCN statistical note about what is the expectation now for writing up and what should readers expect when they read articles about quality improvement. Great piece, short, easy to look at, and telling what the current standard. I love a little section in there that, you know, Rich Brilly and his colleague tell us that we don't want to know what things were like. What we want to know is where we should be and how to get there. Really important. Most QI studies focus on this is what we're like now. Actually, what we really want to focus on is where, you know, where we ought to be. And that piece runs with a systematic review that we had of the uh, QI studies in PICU by Inata uh, and colleagues. There are two pieces that I'm looking for, something on propensity score matching and something on differences in differences analysis. I'm always looking for people with a background in statistics who want to write for PCCN, and I would welcome submissions for the statistics section. So that, that's one group of articles that we've started. Another thing that's just started, and the first trial of this was June 2021, and I hope it will increase, is the pro-con format. So you have an article that's written that's slightly controversial, that is bound to garner debate. So rather than wait for the debate to happen, let's have two experts in the field writing about it in a pro-con format. So in June, we had an article about negative pressure ventilation, and we had a pro-argument for a randomized controlled trial by Alex Rotter, and a con-argument by Martin Schneber, writing about, let's understand the physiology. And we call this PCCM viewpoints. Again, if you think of a controversial area, this is what we're aiming to uh, expose and look at more closely. We used to meet each other at conferences and argue about this and that in the discussion period after a paper presentation. That's gone for the last two years. I don't know if it'll ever come back, but that's gone. So I see the viewpoints as filling in that space, and perhaps we'll see more and more viewpoints. The clinical science review I talked about in the last podcast and Michelle Schober's article on NeuroCOVID, and uh, we have some more coming in the pipeline. I don't want to give you a spoiler on that. I just, uh, you know, wait and see. And I'm hoping that area will expand. There's also something really, really special. Again, I can't tell you what it is. It's coming out in the October issue. The first one of these will be open to uh, readers uh, because it's in my editor's choice. Really, really exciting. And I'm looking for future contributions from around the world. I don't want to spoil it for the people who have written this. Uh, I just want to uh, wait until their article comes out so that it has more impact. But yes, constantly thinking about new things. As hopefully you'll note, all of these were educational and added value. 
you may not be aware, but our impact factor bumped up by 0.8 to like 2.8 to 3.6 or 3.4, something like that. Anyway, it was over three. The advantage of that for me is that we can focus on educational material. This material has very high altmetric scores. We're not all about the impact factor, but it does attract authors. And also it gives us scope to incorporate educational material that may or may not be cited, but I think is useful to have. So that's what we've got coming in the pipeline. I keep my eye out for new formats for articles, new approaches that articles are taking, and where are we going? Well, thank you so much, Robert. And, you know, I have the fortune of having known you as a clinical educator and teacher in the unit for so many years. And I can really see your teaching and your embracing of technology that I know that you love to do with all of these new initiatives in the journal. And, you know, the whole concept of putting together great manuscripts and then pieces that really help us as clinicians delve deeper and continue to learn in some of these things that we may have forgotten, like statistics, or maybe we never learned, like propensity score um, methodology is really exciting to see because it really brings that whole picture together. And I love the fact that you've chosen to sort of bring out the educational domains in this way in the journal. And I commend you and, and hope that this is partly what's contributing to the impact factor and that more journals will continue to embrace that. And super excited to hear about all the amazing new things coming down the pipeline. And I think all of us are going to be incredibly excited to see what's coming in this October edition. If we could maybe turn a little bit to the education domain, you mentioned a bit of that in your last comments. And, you know, that's one of the areas that we haven't touched much on in these last two podcasts. And as an educator myself and a researcher in, in education, one issue that we face is trying to figure out where we should submit our educational manuscript to. Do we choose a journal that's in our field of practice? Do we go to a more education-based journal? And so if I could ask you, what types of educational studies or manuscripts, in addition to the broad educational pieces that you've put out, but really thinking about educational studies. So, you know, research within an educational component, activity, domain, looking on outcomes. What studies are you interested in publishing in the journal? And do you have any advice for us educators that are looking to publish within our, our current field of peds critical care medicine? No, Tracy, it is an important area in our field. You know, I, I said it on our last podcast that we're clinical physiologists. We deal with physiology signals all the time. Of course, the other thing is that we're all educators. Most of us who are, are working in academic centers, or you know, if we have the responsibility of having trainees or junior doctors working with us, we're educators, whether we like it or not. We're either a bad educator or we're a good educator or we're somewhere in between, but we are educators. So uh, yes, I do see this as important. The sort of material that we've got coming up is uh, very much related to domain definitions and 
what it is that uh, we expect in the curriculum for this field or that field. And we have a couple of articles that will come out on pediatric cardiac intensive care under the PCICS banner. So we have that sort of material. In the past, the journal has published things like the top 100 articles. I'm not sure those are useful. I I apologize to any people who wrote those articles. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that there are much better repositories now for articles. We don't really need to tell people what are the best articles, you know, and in whose opinion are the best articles. You know, I, I teach PICU fellows in London every week. And I'm looking at material that has come out last month and supplementing my education and my teaching sessions with this material. So there's constant evolution. I just don't know that the journal is the place for that. So what is the, what type of educational material should we be seeing? I think we need to see methodologies that work. As people who are doing the education, we need to read about stuff that helps us do things better and convinces us that we need to change our practice, that retention of the material and use of the material is for longer, that the way we do it results in better habits and self-education, all of these things. Of course, I have people that are senior associate editors who handle the educational material in their particular domains. But for me personally, I think simulation research, I think the time has gone unless it's in a sort of sim type journal. I think we need to know for real now what the best approaches are. Now, if sim is just the tool where the outcome is benefit in patients or better outcome in patients, that's a completely different matter. But if the methodology is sim and the outcome is sim, I'm not sure that we're still there. I think the field has moved on. I'd be prepared to look at anything that educators think is important to be telling their colleagues, this is what you should be doing, or this is what you should stop doing. Thank you, Robert. I think that that fits very much in line with what is being discussed within the medical education community. I think we've gone beyond the satisfaction and maybe even beyond the pre and post knowledge tests. And we're really looking for those studies that are addressing things that are higher in the Kirkpatrick pyramid. You know, we're really looking at behavioral changes. We're looking at how those can impact learning and behaviors and how those can impact actual patient outcomes. And so I think your approach to that is largely in in what we're seeing as emerging trends of what's being published out there within medical education journals as well. And so it's really time for us to think about creative research designs that allow us to start using outcomes that are a little bit more further advanced. So that's incredibly helpful. I should just mention a couple of other sort of initiatives that we've had. One initiative is I think that there's a whole educational theme that runs through PICU practice that's to do with humanities and um, reflection. You know, how do we access that? And how do we see how other people 
deal with difficult situations or deal with reflections about a situation. Earlier this year, back in maybe April or May even, we started the PCCM narratives section. And I'm pleased that Winnie Morrison and Daniel DeCourcy, who are both expert narrative authors for various journals, have been able to take on this section for me at PCCM and altmetric scores sky high for the reflections that are being written, the narratives that are being written. And we're now hearing that this type of material is being used as educational material for fellows in some centres. So we're hopefully going to run a piece on that. Watch that and uh, read those, please. Thank you, Robert. I, I think, you know, you're describing part that I think we've become even more interested to learning about and hearing about. I think the COVID pandemic has been one thing that's been really forced for us to think about, you know, really the human connection, being human, how can we promote things like resilience? What are some of the stressors? What are the ways that we can improve our abilities as human beings to continue to care for patients when we have challenges? And I think that this component of the journal really fits that element so nicely and is, is hugely needed. And really hopefully can spark some of these conversations that are necessary to make us all the best clinicians and the best humans that we can be. I wanted to kind of pivot and just ask you kind of on a personal level. We've been talking a lot about the Journal of Pete's Critical Care Medicine today, but that's only one part of the large body of knowledge that we need to learn and read and assimilate as clinicians. I'm curious, how do you, as Robert Tasker, handle this large amount of information and how do you keep current in order to be the best clinician and be the most informed about feeds critical care medicines? And what lessons do you have for those of us that might be looking for advice on how best to do that? One of the advantages that I have, of course, Tracy, is that I have a lot more time than you and I have a lot more time to prepare for teaching and prepare material. So I keep current by case-based learning and researching the field as best I can to the most contemporary point. Uh, the other aspect, which is new for me, which started the beginning of January, is that I now try and take a molecular mechanistic approach to any explanation that I think has a physiological basis. So did a teaching session on oxygen sensitivity, the CO2 response curve, and I think I'm pretty up to date on where our basic scientists think that oxygen sensing is at the moment and CO2 responses are at a molecular level. I think that's good for the next six months and I move on to the next pathway. I'm told that there's 30,000 different pathways, so I'm not going to run out of pathways, but that's the idea. Keep an eye on the pathways and just read around. And if it's not free, then it's, I don't read it in general. I tend to supply things for the fellows that they can access free and go to the source. Well, as you know, that is a movement that is near and dear to my heart. 
free open access medical education and how we can broadly share resources with, with all clinicians around the world. And so I value your insights and I love going back to the beginning and the basics and starting from there. And then with that, it makes everything easier, clinical reasoning and sort of thinking about things and not talking about memorization, but really starting from the beginning and working your way through the pathway. So I think that's really sound advice for all of us to think about and then remember to go back to. We'll close up our podcast here. This has been incredibly wonderful to have the opportunity to talk with you today, Robert. And again, we just appreciate your leadership in the journal and for sharing your insights about emerging components in the journal, emerging trends within pediatric critical care medicine, and some tips for us in terms of how we can really submit better articles to the journal and think about our own clinical practice and staying current. So definitely appreciate your time for both of these podcasts and uh, look forward to talking with you again in a future podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you, Tracy. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. To hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.